Welcome back. We're almost at the end of season one and it has been quite a journey. We have learned a lot about what is known about Libya, but also about what we still have to learn. We hope that you've enjoyed untying this complicated knot with us. Please do let us know what you think of what you've heard so far and also what you'd like to hear in season two of Libya Matters. And now to this episode. We hear a lot about Libya as a divided country, the recent polarization, just the most recent permutation of that. In this episode, I'm joined by Hafid Lagouel, non-resident senior fellow at the Foreign Policy Institute at the School of Advanced International Studies at John Hopkins University, and before that, at the Atlantic Council's Rafiq Hariri Center for the Middle East, and media and social media commentator and provocateur, to discuss the divisions in and of a nation, from the historic context to the possibility of dividing the country in the future. Do listen and let us know what you think of one of the most provocative ideas posed so far. Hello, welcome back to Libya Matters. It's Ilham. Uh, with me today is Hafid Lagouel, a Libya thinker and researcher and prolific commentator on the Libyan story for the last three decades. His CV would take the whole episode to recount, but key for this episode is his work as a senior fellow at the Foreign Policy Institute at John Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies, and before that at the Atlantic Council's Rafiq Hariri Center for the Middle East and as a contributor to leading outlets, including Arab News, Al Jazeera, Al Arabiya, the BBC, NPR, you can keep going. I don't want to waste time on introductions with him because I really want to get to the juice of this conversation. In the last weeks, months, years, we've heard a lot about the divisions in Libya and the fragmentation of the society and the polarization of society and the politicization of society. And... As I hear those conversations from 2011 onwards, I keep thinking, is this about the divisions in Libya or is it about the division of Libya? And to explore some of these themes in a lot more detail and to get a, I am sure, an entirely candid look at it, I want to bring Hafid in to look at this. So maybe I'll start with you, Hafid, with the very first question is, are we a divided nation? Well, first of all, thank you so much, Ilham. I'm really happy to be with you on this. Uh, we are a divided nation. And um, historically, we have always been, uh, in some ways, a divided nation. If you, if you use the term nation in the modern sense of a nation state, um, Libya as a country, uh, or even as a name, was only, uh, only came about in 1930-31. When the Italians decided they want to uh, have one governor uh, overseeing the whole territory that they occupied. Before that, as you know, Libya was basically referred to as Tripolitania, which is the west part of Libya with the, with the center of Tripoli. Uh, uh, then you have Sri Lanka, which is the east part of Libya. And then you have Fizan in the south. The fact that the Libyan population has always been very, very small throughout history. Um, and until today, if you compare it to places like Egypt or Algeria or even Tunisia, uh, meant, and the size of the country meant that even the, the connection or, or the relationship between a lot of these parts, which are essentially a lot of them are Bedouin background. Uh, was was very very far apart. They did not interact with each other really a great deal until the modern time and until, if you will, when when federalism in Libya was was overturned in 1964, and then under the rule of Muammar Gaddafi, which you know the Iron Rule, if you will, the Iron Hand of Muammar Gaddafi, which forced everybody into this um, somewhat of a cohesive state. 
after the fall of Gaddafi, of course, nature takes over and things went back into um, tribal, regional uh, self-identification of the various groups of Libya. So when you look at it uh, historically and geographically, um, and even you know socially and economically, and I'm an economist, economist so I see things in that sense, um, it is a divided nation. That's the short, straight answer to it. And what was the cause in 2011 that these came out? Why did the 40 years of this cohesion that you described not hold us together in 2011? First of all, there is a sort of uh, uh, what I would call the Libyan personality or, or this, you know, the kind of, of character that defines Libyans uh, as a whole. This is a general term over a long time, and that is sort of a fierce independence, Bedouin um, culture, um, that over the centuries, it's not strange, uh, you know, the, the, the interest of individuals or families or so on was in the protection of the group they belong to. Uh, when you don't have uh, any real institutions in place, uh, no real sort of legal framework, that governs the relationship between individuals and enforces some kind of a security uh, that protects individuals and, and, and groups. Uh, when you don't have that and the state falls apart, uh, it's no, no, um, no surprise that people turn back into their uh, sort of smaller sense of who they are. Uh, their identity becomes more tribal or regional on the level of their cities. This is what we've been seeing in Libya since 2011, as the state collapsed and uh, violence sort of uh, exploded and it became basically a civil war since 2011, you know, different intensity. And then there were smaller civil wars within various parts of the country. Uh, people uh, seek their, their protection and their, their, their interest uh, in, in, in their immediate groups, whether it's a tribe or the level of a city or even a neighborhood in some parts of Tripoli. That's interesting because I had almost framed it as the divisions that we're seeing now are coming more from the politics that are enforced on us. But actually, the way you describe it, it's almost a natural division, right? It's a cultural thing. It's actually what we are more comfortable with um, and that the concept of a, of a united um nation is what's foreign, which which might, I don't know, seem controversial for people who kind of came together, you know, in the narrative that we often hear of this revolution for the for the whole country. No, I mean, I agree. At the end, the politics of any society reflects the societal sort of uh, norms and history and geography. So, uh, you know, I, I'm a firm believer that, the, that it is the society that projects its its political uh, form uh, but then you also have sometimes certain political movements uh, that can affect society in a very very serious ways for example i mean divisions within libya have lasted up until 1969 in some form or another even when when the king was forced to remove the federal system there were still a lot of of uh, divided politics within the Libyan parliament at that time. I mean, there is this romantic picture of the period of the monarchy, but anybody who lived it, and I've you know talked to so many Libyans of the age where they were living in that time, they will tell you very much that uh, this kind of hackling and this kind of political 
divisions, uh, also regional divisions, were very much alive and present during the monarchy. Uh, just they did not take on the form of violence that we've seen. It was only in 1969 when a military coup happened that it was basically Gaddafi's firm uh, ideological background, which is, uh, as you know, Arab nationalism and unity and all of that, which by force uh, sort of dominated the scene and forced all of these divisions to go underground um, because there was no outlet for them. But then the minute that pressure from the top uh, broke, out, uh, broke off, uh, all of these divisions came up. And we've seen that in many parts of the world. This is not unique to Libya. I mean, we've seen that even in countries like Iraq, which has a little bit more sophisticated history um, and political background. We've seen it also in places like Yugoslavia. We've seen it also in other parts of, of, of Africa. Um, so, so this is the nature sort of reclaiming uh, its place. Um, now, you can get... Out of this, of course, it's not uh, a destiny, but you need a much deeper work to actually be able to uh, forge some kind of a national identity that all Libyans can uh, uh, sort of relate to. And I think that's a really interesting perspective of, of looking at it. And if we, but if I'm trying to think about it from the context of the, if you like, the institutional reality in Libya versus these natural instincts you describe. And I think that's what you're kind of talking about, right? That's where the tension is, where the, yes. the institutions are hyper-centralized. It is absolutely the opposite of what we're, you know, the kind of natural instinct of division, if that's the word we're using. You know, the there is three, four institutions and the episode we had on um, the economic questions of Libya with Timitin talks about this in, in a lot of detail about, you know, that how everything in Libya is actually centralized economically in a square kilometer in Libya. Yet our, our instinct, as you describe, is one of separation. So how do you, in this reality, in this de facto division we see in Libya, how much of it is um, driven by this instinct or how much more is it driven, if you like, in my mind, by a lot of the expediency of the political conflict of having two sides because that's what you need for a conflict and the narrative imposing the reality instead of the reality dictating the narrative. First of all, I'll start off by saying you don't have only two parts in Libya. You have multiple parts. Some of them come together and coalesce under one umbrella, for example, and they will support one side or another for a period of time and then they switch sides. Um, yes, currently you are dealing with two larger alliances, one centered in Tripoli in support of um, the, the government of national unity, which is the internationally recognized government. And then you have another sort of collection of alliances and militias and tribes and so on, um, supporting Haftar in the east. But then you also have still all kinds of different other subdivisions within that uh, based, uh, you, you know, you have the Musratas, you have the Zintans, you have the, the Tabu. So the politics plays both ways. But what I'm trying to sort of also point out uh, to is that throughout history and these realities of the Libyan population, if you will, over the, over the centuries, um, until recently, really recently, uh, did not sort of support or helped define a national identity that can unite people. And there has never been a real dialogue, a real sort of 
so, you know, to, uh, bottom up approach to how do you sort of define this? Uh, what is it that unites a person in Tripoli with a person in Fizan, for example? What is it? What is it that unites somebody in Tripoli with Benghazi? How can everybody share in, in, in sort of the future of the country and the wealth of the country? The, the wealth has become uh, confined to power. I mean, people seek power to get wealth uh, because of the corruption, because of the nepotism, because of all of that. Um, therefore, the government becomes the, real, becomes the real avenue through which people get their share of wealth. If you pay attention to the to the talk coming from the eastern of Libya today, for example, even by Haftar, their main grievance is they don't have uh, a full share of the oil wealth. Uh, they don't have a full share in the positions in government. Whether that's right or wrong, I doubt it is right. Uh, I mean, there are numbers that say it's the other way around. But at the end of the day, that's the narrative. That's how people see uh, percep uh, their perception of reality, and that's very, very important. And in your in your mind, who is creating this narrative? Because that's what I, f I find interesting. Because we keep talking about narratives a lot in Libya, and, and what I'm interested in as well in in kind of trying to explore these topics is who is controlling the narrative in Libya? Is that because that we know that the media has a role in feeding this modern division that we see. Absolutely. You, you have certain elements in the east of Libya over the years since the 1960s and even in the 50s when the country was just newly born have always had a problem with the notion of uh, uniting with uh, Tripolitania. I mean, uh, you know that, for example, in the beginning of the, of the independence, there was a lot of haggling back and forth about who gets to rule the country and who gets to be uh, united with who. And then they settled on the idea, we'll have the king from the east and we'll have uh, some of the institutions and government and the prime ministers will be from the west, for example. So it was a compromise even at that time. The easterners have always seen themselves as, a, as, as sort of an independent uh, identity. Um, and the fact that they are much more... Uh, reliant or made up of tribes than, than the western part of Libya also adds an element of sort of uh, commitment to this kind of narrative that we are Bedouins, we are Arabs, we are... And, and you he hear that even socially, I mean, you know, of Easterners uh, sort of speaking of, of the guys in the West as a mix of Turks and Italians, they're not real Arabs, they're not this... The, a lot of them are Amazigh. So a lot of it takes the form of even uh, ethnic kind of um, uh, talk. That sense has then been used politically by various groups and, and voices throughout the years to say that the Western part uh, where the capital is are stealing our wealth. I mean, because some parts or the initial parts of oil discoveries were all in the Eastern side of Libya. And so these tribes felt that that's our oil and that's our wealth and the Western part is just stealing it. Uh, and they're not giving us our dues on this. That, of course, was taken over by certain political elements that exasperated that kind of talk and, and used it to try to sort of create a separate, a separate identity for the Eastern part of Libya and to say, 
we want uh, first started with we want federalism and we want more control on our oil now when it became when you added the violence to it uh it became sort of uh, almost uh, an instigator of of a reaction from from the west in in the older days or even recently even before the last few months uh, Tripolitanians tended to see themselves as urban, as uh, the capital of the whole country, as, you know, that this is a, a city that has all kinds of people in it from the east, from the south, from everywhere. And that's, that's a, that, that fits within the history of Tripoli as a trading port. Uh, throughout the centuries, Tripoli was always more open to the outsiders, more uh, sort of closer to the Mediterranean culture than to the Bedouin culture. But then as this violence came about and Haftar sort of led this uh, collection of, of forces, most of them are made up of Eastern tribes uh, against Tripoli. Of course, you had the opposite reaction coming from Tripolitanians who are saying, well, these people don't, you know, um, don't belong to us. We, we don't want to be with them anymore. They've proven to be, um, you know, uh, nothing but a problems they've always complained they always have done that so okay fine let's let's separate i want to just unpick some of that because one of the things i'm really conscious about is not also us like falling into the same narratives of us and them and this and that and i think what would what i'm interested in is maybe defining some some terms so one of the things i keep hearing a lot in libya that i sometimes feel is misused is the word federalism and the reason I say that is um, in 2012 and 2013, LFJL spent a lot of time traveling across the country um, for the Dasturi tour, and we discussed federalism a lot. And actually, a lot of what you're saying came through in those conversations. For people, federalism was almost an emotional requirement as opposed to a legis- legislative or practical one. And so it was like a, it was an emotional request in the sense that it's recognizing the difference in the country. But then when you talk to them about technically how federalism would work and how you would work a federal budget and how you'd work a federal economy and how the laws would work in a federal system and and all of that, that wasn't actually the conversation. It was more about recognizing the national differences as opposed to putting in place a legal system that enshrines... um, certain mechanisms. So for example, you know, we are, I remember very distinctly uh, a moment in, um, in, 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 in the square in Benghazi when we were talking about federalism and I said to them, okay, so you want to have separate budgets and you have to manage your own budget and you get a certain proportion of the wealth and, you, and as a result, you have to provide the education for your area, you have to deal with taxation in your area and all the things that you would see in a normal federal system, say in, you know, um, in the US or in, uh, in Germany or the like. And to them, that wasn't really the, dem- the demand. The demand was more, not, no, that sounds like too much structure and we're too small a population. Actually, what we, are, what we really want is just to be recognized and different and to be treated fairly because a lot of the oil resides with us, but a lot of it is centralized in Tripoli. And so I think it's more, there's a, there's a nuance between decentralization and federalism that sometimes gets lost in the conversation on Libya. It's that nuance that I would like to explore a little bit, but also to think about really a lot of the time the term federali or federalist in Libya is used in a very emotional, emotive way, as opposed to a, a genuine, if you like, manifesto demand of some of these political actors. 
I agree entirely. And, and, and that sort of uh, confirms what I'm telling you is a lot of this self-definition is really based on instinct and emotions rather than this notion of a nation state in the Western sense is alien in many parts of the world and in Libya itself. It is not uh, a historical uh, or, or, or political reality that emerged naturally, as, for example, it emerged in, Euro in Europe. Uh, it, it didn't have, uh, I mean, our history is quite different from, let's say, England or Switzerland or Germany. Uh, the, the political structures in these Western countries came about over centuries of development of, of sort of uh, self-reflection, historical experiences, uh, value systems, uh, economic realities, and so on. In, 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 in a place like Libya, it was imposed by the outside. It did not emerge on its own. But, but, but I mean, but we're going to end up with another fake structure, right? Because it, we're in the same process now where um, we're, we're having a lot of facilitators help us. So in thinking about the ideal fake structure, um, we, we have like, I think we have a spectrum from the hypercentralization we've had for the last 40 odd years to the other end of the spectrum, a total creation of two, possibly three different countries to somewhere in between. And I think our reality for our next fake structure that we'll have to acclimatize to is somewhere in between. And, and maybe we can take a moment to explore the different options there, because in my mind, there is the hypercentralization, there is a form of decentralization along a spectrum. There is the imposition of a federal system um, in, a, in a more structured way. And then the extreme, if you like, is the saying, well, you know what, this is an unnatural union. There should be two countries, there should be three countries, and let us uh, accept that and, and divide the country along those lines. In one of your recent articles, you said that, you know, a genuine political process should, in, should have everything on the table to discuss. And so I think it's really worth us going, okay, let's discuss these different options. And if there is one that we think is actually the most realistic to achieve, and that would bring a more sustainable system for Libya that would enshrine things that protect people and that, you know, have uh, a fundamental law that is, in, that is uh, if you like, workable. Because I think that's what, that's really interesting. And, and I, bringing all the stuff we've been discussing of our history, which is repeating itself, we are very much in the same situation now where we are in a conflict and relying on external actors to help stabilize us and to help, you know, impose a structure on us. So let us try to explore, of, okay, which is the most suitable structure for the kind of outcomes that we need for for a stable future i i agree i think you you sort of touched very clearly on this the problem is in much of the arab world uh the population doesn't see the government as a part of it uh, it sees the government almost like a, a fate imposed on it i mean there's no yeah. no no sense of the government belongs to them and they they are in charge they're always on the mercy of a government and that has to do with the with the oil. If you want, we can get into it. Why is that quite a reality in, in rentier straight states? And there is a very logical economic rationale behind it. Uh, so it's not just simply lack of uh, wisdom or intelligence. But anyway, uh, when it comes to these forms of government that you just outlined, I think you're right on the mark. Um, these are essentially the options available to Libya. The, the thing that I would like to caution about is that these are not fixed uh, norms or fixed structures. 
they they tend they tend to move according to the reality on the ground, right? So at one time maybe you'll have the circumstances necessary to form uh, a realistic centralized government. At other times things change in reality, and therefore the structure that will make sense has to move from that into something else, decentralization, partition, or whatever. So it's, it's a very fluid reality on, you know, that depends on what's happening in reality. There was a period of time in which centralization was possible, um, even in the beginning of 2011, 2012. However, uh, unfortunately, as you know, most people will, will recognize now, um, there wasn't really the kind of political leadership in 2011 and 12 and so on and after that, that was able to lead that kind of a change and have the, the courage and the foresight uh, and the vision um, that is necessary to form countries uh, or states. I think that the boat, if you will, of uh, centralized government has gone. Um, I don't think it will come back. I don't think it's possible now to convince any part of Libya that they should all be under one centralized government that, you know, distributes the money and all of that. But is that not what everyone is fighting for, actually, is to have a centralized government, but with them in charge? Right now, the only way you're going to do that is if you have one one person in charge or one political um, current in charge. Like what happened with Gaddafi, for example. I mean, Gaddafi imposed the centralized government uh, not necessarily because people wanted it or he asked them or he cared for them, uh, cared for their opinion. It was just his mind and his will and the fact that he had the absolute power to impose it on everybody and everybody accepted it. Uh, but only as we've seen temporarily until Gaddafi was gone and then everything comes back mm-hmm. again. Uh, so yes, you can have centralized government, but there is a price for that and that is to accept one um, authoritarian uh, sort of figure or a regime to do that. Decentralization is much more complex because it also requires a very sophisticated administrative structure. As you know, decentralization is an administrative problem, yeah. um, whereas, for example, federalism is a, is a sovereignty issue. Um, so in order to actually run a very effective and popular decentralization in Libya, you need a very, very sophisticated administrative structure, which unfortunately, at least from my point of view, I don't see the country has the capacity to do. You have then the issue of federal system. And and federalism is a possibility in Libya today uh, because historically Libyans can understand the issue of federalism um, since it was a part of their history. Uh, you know, from the day of independence in, in 52 until 64, uh, you had uh, that's 12 years of having a federal system, which maintained at least peace. I mean, they were still haggling with each other and fighting over this and that, but uh, they they were at least within a peaceful structure. Uh, they did not, you know, carry arms against each other. The oil, you know, it was discovered in 62 and then started being exported in 64. Immediately as the oil got discovered, then you became became a problem. And that's when the various federal states, which were three of them, as you know, um, Tripolitania, Sri Lanka, and Pizan, started really fighting because everybody wanted the oil. You know, how do you get your hands on that oil? How do you get your hands on the wealth that's coming from it? 
And that's what forced uh, the hands of the king uh, to completely dismantle the federal system and make Libya a central government in Tripoli. It was entirely because of the oil issue. I mean, the the federal system did not um, get scrapped just because there was a national awakening, for example, or wanting a unity. It, it happened simply because of the oil question and how do you divide that oil? Libya today is a divided country in reality on the ground. There is no question about it. You have two governments. Uh, from, this is the east and the, and the west side. You have two governments, you have two armies who are is now fighting each other, actually, in, in a war. You have two central banks, you have two parliaments, you have, uh, there's a news agency in the East and the West. There are investment, the investment authority is divided. Everything is divided. Uh, logically argue that this war that is happening between the East and the West is essentially or uh, implicitly a war to uh, uh, of demarcation, of, of setting the, the, the sort of the, 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 the borders, both geographically, politically, culturally, between these two parts. Would that satisfy the parties? I don't think, I mean, no, I'm, I'm not a political no. analyst, because for me, no. just from a, as an observer, it looks like the parties involved are taking a winner-takes-all approach because of the centralized nature of the, of the country. And so it, it doesn't... I mean, I, this is so far outside my comfort zone because I always look at things from, obviously, a legal perspective. And and I want to look at how legally these different options would work in a minute. But I think just just looking at it play out for me, it, it doesn't look like anyone would be satisfied if it got to a, a natural border that things would just settle that way, including those that are leading on the political um, agreement that, you know, that doesn't seem to be really on the table to say, okay, let's let's look at a partition or let's look at even a federal a federalist approach. It's still very much uh, let's divide the cake amongst the the parties involved, but it remains one cake, if you like. And I think that's the bit that is driving this this process. And from a legal perspective um, and from a kind of institutional perspective, that is exactly how Libya is structured. Um, it is structured very much as a winner-takes-all approach. We might have a lot of parallel institutions at the moment, but the infrastructure is not really built, built to sustain both those parallel institutions, I would say, and which is why this conflict is going on. Because if, they were, if there was generally two central banks that had the same ability to work into national oil companies and the like, then it would have naturally perhaps divided. But I think there is the bit that I don't, that I don't understand or I, I don't see is that this is that we have the ability to do this as as easily as we might be suggesting in our conversation because actually i think you know institutionally the by the laws we have in the country by the structure of the country it is not it is not built for anything other than hyper centralization and maybe we take a moment to think about how a political process could put those genuinely on the table um and 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 what perhaps from my perspective I'm thinking, you know, constitutionally, et cetera, what would need to happen to accommodate all that. And, and even that process is obviously not envisaging any of this. Hello? I'm sorry, it just cut off. I have no idea why. No, this is but... very exciting. I mean, I should explain to our uh, <laughs> listeners that this is the first time we do something um, remotely. And I don't know if they hear the ping yeah. of you coming in, but I, otherwise it sounds like you just left the room. So. <laughs> 
So it's, it's just an, no. a, a technical error and not... Uh... My, my sincere apologies <laughs> to you and to the audience. I don't know why I'm sitting, you know, I'm, I, I was talking and listening to you and then it all went uh, off. But I, th I think I'm just trying to probe this a little bit better, uh, just to probe it a little bit more in the sense of, I, I fully see the argument that's being made and, the, and how sort of it, where it comes from and that this seems like the natural progression of where things are going. But on the flip side, the if you like, as a lawyer, I always think of the paperwork involved in this, right? That's my mindset. The, the paperwork doesn't allow for this. <laughs> and so if, if, I that to, makes sense. if I am to think about that, that's kind of, that's where my mind keeps stopping me. It's like, well, none of the stuff we've seen, whether it's the LPA or the constitutional draft or anything, envisages this as even an option. Um, regardless of what the reality or the de facto is showing us. And in fact, a lot of energy is being put into debunking this. Um, and then the second part of it is, well, even in our research as an organization, actually, despite the, the amount of people that talk about federalism, when you then explain to them the reality of it and what is required from the paperwork perspective to put it in place, it's, it's not really... It doesn't align with what the demand is, which is more about um, I don't know, more of a, more of kind of a redistribution or a division of resources and um, more representation. So it, it's things that could be dealt with within the current framework as opposed to a new framework and full declaration. I, I have no real view on this because I'm still exploring all options. But I think I feel like I have to be putting the case forward, working within this confines we have before we explore a very, very ex sort of a very big change from what we have now. I don't even have a preference myself. What I'm looking at is what is it that's going to work given the reality of the country, mm -hmm. right? No, what I'm saying is that, you know, most populists around the world don't really, I mean, even when they respond to a question like, do you want to separate from Europe, they will do it on an emotional level without really thinking through all of the consequences of it, uh, or the paperwork, as you put it. Um, Libya is no exception to that. Uh, and therefore, I think it, that's, that's the issue that I'm, I was trying to say. Uh, uh, but all of these options need to be put forward, honestly, and with 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 a leadership that has a vision and and can make the case uh, realistically and in intelligently of what is the best option for us to go to maintain some form of of uh, cohesion within the country and minimize any future conflicts so the questions that i'm trying to explore is or i'm trying to sort of suggest to the libyan uh, uh, political class, uh, or is that, that there should be a, a new vision, a new leadership. I mean, usually civil wars produce uh, political leaderships that have a vision, that have uh, the ability to lead uh, and to explore the future in an honest, open way uh, that can generate trust and can, you know, um, sort of uh, take the country over over the edge. Uh, but uh, so far, unfortunately, Libya has not produced anybody like that or any class of people like that who are talking to the Libyans as intelligent adults. At the end of the day, you're dealing with very basic human questions. Uh, what is good for you? What is good for your children? And here is the given reality we are living under. 
And we need to come to terms on how to do this uh, and, and figure out the best way for us all to sort of share in this pie. Uh, a lot of these issues need to uh, be managed uh, in, in a legal, and this is where people like you can come in, is how do you structure a legal system that can hold people accountable uh, for whatever the, the, uh, the responsibility given to them. This conversation, obviously, in addition to paper, paperwork, the other bread and butter of us lawyers is talking. And so for me, conversations is, is a really key part here. And actually, you know, I, I did refer to the story before, but I think that for me that what was really lacking in this really crucial state building process that we're discussing is that that conversation didn't happen during the constitution process. And that is obviously the most fertile ground to discuss what the country should look like and what our national identity is. But I don't, what I want to avoid is kind of, you know, both of us bemoaning the failures of everything that's happened since 2011 and before, but think concretely about, okay, what would a conversation look like about this? Who should be involved in that kind of conversation? And actually, is the conversation to say, okay, here are all the options, or is the conversation to, to try and create a national identity to avoid division? So are we I guess my, my question is, is division a bad word that we should be seeking to avoid? And therefore, a national conversation should really be about reflecting on creating a national identity. Or is division a neutral word? And we should just be saying, this is our reality. This is a potential outcome. Let's talk about all the options. And let us, as a nation, come together to decide which route is most suitable for us. And I think the final follow-on on that is to say, okay, if it's when is the right time for that conversation? Because I can't imagine that it's today. Um, first of all, I don't happen to think any political term is uh, is out of bound. I think all all of them are neutral. Uh, I mean, it's it, they have to reflect a reality. Um, and we, you know, this is not uh, you know you're not dealing with kids here that you need to hide stuff from. I mean, the reality is there. And, you know, there is a very specific uh, set of conditions uh, under each of these options we out outlined. I mean, even the issue of division uh, is not as easy as people think. It's not like somebody's going to come and just, you know, mark a border and everybody goes their way. The key question that you, the key observation is, when is this conversation possible? And I have advised this personally to to, to those in charge in, in of the of the government of national accord because it is the legal government after all that they need to come up with some kind of a vision for the country uh, post conflict um, and 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 sort of address some of these key issues not necessarily the options of federalism whatever that can come later but to simply explain to people what, what will happen after this war. Let's, let's assume tomorrow this war on Tripoli stops. What happens? Uh, uh, not only in, in, in addressing the international concerns of what's going to happen, but also the internal concerns of people. You know, people in Tripoli don't want the guys, guys uh, who belonged in, in these militias which they've struggled to kick out of Tripoli over the years and to sort of try to control them. They don't want them to come back uh, and say, we are in charge. Yeah. They don't want them to come back. So a lot of these issues have to be unpacked and untangled. And, and that only can happen in one of two ways. Either you have 
one dictatorial regime that's in charge and dictates what they want and says, here's how it's going to go. Like it or not, this is it. And can enforce that, which is quite unrealistic in today's Libya. I don't think there is anybody who can do that. Um, and the other option is you have an honest-to-God conversation. And uh, instead of uh, uh, limiting that conversation to these small, both minded and small, um, small and influence kind of circles of politics, uh, I think the conversation needs to expand and include much larger groups and, 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 and be an honest, as simple conversation as possible. I mean, you don't have to talk about these issues in complicated political or legal terms. Uh, I think there is, uh, and this is one of the requirements of, of, a, of a great political leaders, um, is to actually bring down these complex issues to the level of people and explain them in terms that average Libyans can understand and can relate to. I think it's, um, I mean, it's what you what you say, and, and amen to having a conversation, because that is exactly, that is exa- hopefully that is what we end up with and, and not... Um, and not a dictatorship. Now, this is super frustrating because it's we're coming to the end of the episode, and like any good conversation, I have more questions now than when I started, and uh, I want to carry on talking some more. Um, but I will. I want to open the conversation to our listeners and, and ask them to react to what I think has been one of the more juicy topics we've put out on on Libya matters. And so, you know, this is a plea to our listeners to let us know what they think are potential options um, for for Libya. But before I, I, I bring this to a temporary end, because I want this conversation to continue in the future, is um, we have this segment that we run at the end of each episode called Debunking the Narrative. Normally, it's me saying a statement that we hear a lot in the media and ask the, the, the speaker to debunk it. But you've actually dealt with a couple of the ones that I had in mind for you. So I'd like okay. you to share with me your most hated cliches you hear about Libya in the context of its political process? I, I, there are a lot of cliches that completely, you know, um, throw me off the top. Uh, you know, you have the cliches, I'm sure you've heard them. Everything is because of Gaddafi. I mean, that's nonsense. Gaddafi is a product of these forces in Libya, political, social, historical, geographic, and he was no different than any other Libyan. He just happened to be in power at, at a certain part. But at the end of the day, he didn't rule alone. I mean, his government and his committees and so on were made of Libyans themselves. So <laughs> you cannot really say it's only one person who did all of this. It was a complete uh, national choices of not resisting him, of not saying this is wrong, of not doing this or not doing that. So that's one cliche that I find absolutely frustrating. And I think it is blinding. I think it blinds people to the actual realities of, of what has happened in Libya, the deeper forces moving the country. So that's one. The other one is when they try to compare Libya um, to, in a very sim- simplistic way, to other countries like in Europe, for example, you'll hear them say, oh, what's happening in Libya is exactly what happened in the French Revolution or what happened to the American Revolution. I mean, I think that is really a, a, a quite an ignorant statement because it shows that you don't really know Libya nor you know these countries you're talking about um, and the difference between them. So these, uh, these kind of cliches really drive me nuts. Uh, one other 
uh, note, if I may, Elham, I want to tell your listeners as they think about what is the best way to sort of go about this and to, to, to discuss these issues. I want them to understand that uh, having a dialogue uh, is also quite different options. You can have dialogue, which is what's happening now, with guns. I mean, what's happening in Libya now is a conversation is just with violence. Uh, you can have also a dialogue that is confined into very uh, sort of, you know, some kind of a hyperbole of some sort uh, with slogans, with canned statements, with some kind of superficial understanding of things. And you can have an honest to God conversation like you're having it with a family member. Um, and try to sort of, with the intention not for each one of you to score points or who gets to be right or wrong, but rather to try to explore together what can happen. And that's really the kind of conversation that people need to have. What is the best way for us to go? And then everybody can contribute and nobody is wrong. Uh, just you get the collection, sort of a crowd sourcing kind of a process by which everybody contributes and then you come up with some kind of a cohesive understanding of what people want. Um, that's that's my just last uh, note I would like people to sort of keep in mind as they're thinking about this. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a five-star review on iTunes. This will help us get discovered and keep growing. If you would like to suggest any guests or topics for future episodes, please let us know on our Facebook page, Libya Matters, or tweet us at Libya Matters Pod. This episode was hosted by me, Ilham Saudi. It was produced by Tariq Almiri. The people who put it all together are Linda Patumi, Marwa Mohammed, and myself, and Ahmed Madi. Libya Matters is made possible by our partnership with international media support, IMS. Don't forget to tune in next week for a new episode.